Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, free boobin and when it's warranted, aka summer, making it as a writer, why we love Stanley Tucci and his polka dot apron, and a listener calls us out on how we talk about periods, plus an update on how white people are using emoji and how to deal with an office frenemy. Let's do some questions. I'm going to do the bra one first. Okay, do you want to read it? Okay, a question. I have a question regarding going sans bra. Lately, I have been really bucking the bra, and I found myself being more and more confident about leaving the house with the nips visible from beneath the t-shirts. This has not always been the case. I do not have small breasts, 34D, and all my life have struggled to really embrace the boobs as a wonderful part of my body, as opposed to something to be ashamed of or self-conscious about how they were making boys feel. So this brings me to my question. When do you think it is appropriate to go free boobin? Wow. Praise to the phrase free boobin. Okay. <laughs> right. Obviously not work, probably not when I go to visit grandma, but what about the grocery store? To grab a beer with a friend? To watch Game of Thrones with the guys on Sunday? Only at home? When am I allowed to be proud of these things on my chest? And when do I have to be conscious of how my nipples are making people, men, uncomfortable? I'm trying to stop policing my own body, but also trying to be respectful and mindful of the world around me. I don't want to be the girl who doesn't wear a bra, but also, like, fuck the person who decided my nipples are sexual and that man's are acceptable. Ugh. I feel Janelle Monet's lyric, get off my areola, is especially relevant here. <laughs> Man, this is so, yeah, I mean, this is real for me. I go free boobin a lot more than society says I should. Obviously, like, not work, even though I have free boobed at work. I think it depends on what you're wearing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and every single time when I leave the door, I'm like, man, this is dangerous business. Yeah. But you know, an, actually an insane thing, I have noticed that the people who police me the most when I'm not wearing a bra is other women. Because they're jealous? No, they're because like, they How notice. Did you get away? They yeah. notice and they're nosy. I think that if a man sees your boobs, I don't think that he understands that there's a bra or not. Like... <laughs> You know, like, I don't think that they know, but, like, the women will, like, laser, they, like, know exactly what's happening. I feel like it's a comfort issue. Do you do it when you know you're not going to be moving around a ton? Because I always, one reason I leave with a bra on, even though my boobs are not that big, is because it is, like, a physically uncomfortable jiggle factor sometimes. You know, honestly, um, and I have ginormous boobs, this is, like, not a brag, like, actual fact, um, it hurts more to be wearing a bra than not to. So obviously, like, no running around, no strenuous exercise. But if I'm going to the grocery store or, yeah, I'm going to grab a beer with friends or whatever, like, I'm definitely not wearing a bra. Right. Like, and definitely not. And I feel okay about it. Like, I, I don't, like, not wear a bra and then wear a v-neck shirt. I think that's territory I'm not willing to veer down. But I am really okay with just the, like, hey, this is my casual look. It's so funny. Her email, too, I always wonder. It's like, are you just assuming that 
men are looking or commenting or whatever? Or is it like, I wonder if people are actually saying things to her. Yeah, no, right. I think I've never had a dude say anything to me. Like I said, it was always women. And right. and that made me really uncomfortable, especially when I was younger. It just, I, I remember the story of how I started wearing a bra. Like I developed really early. I was not down for a bra. I never wanted one. I think I was in the fifth grade and <laughs> I was running around with one of my like little like friends and her cousin, I remember this, Christopher, awful, awful boy, came up to me and goes, you have really big boobs for a fifth grader. And I went home that night, put on a bra, and I didn't take it off for like 10 years. Aww. And I slept in it, everything. And I was so self-conscious. And I think that that's why it still triggers me when anybody brings it up. Right. But I'm at the point where I'm comfortable enough and I don't... Like, for me, it's more a question of aesthetic. I think that sometimes, if I'm not wearing a bra and I'm like running around the grocery store... I almost look like a mess. You know, there's nothing like sweatpants happening. There's, you know, and I was like, well, this is not really the image I'm trying to project today. Right. Yeah. I think it also just depends, man. Like some people have very pronounced nipples and some people don't. Oh, so I was going to bring this up. I looked this up there. A woman wrote about not wearing a bra for a week on BuzzFeed and she, let's see. She says, depending, depending, I'm either a 40D or a 38E. So, like, pretty big boobs. And she, one of her, like, lessons from the week without a bra was that people are more mature about cold nipples than you'd think. Like, she, so <laughs> she writes, that. I put on my thinnest t-shirt. I am in full droop mode. There's a, there's a gif here of her in a, v, a thin v-neck with no bra. She basically is, like, finds herself crossing her arms over them all day. And then finally at the end, she writes... I begin to realize that no one is going to punish me for breaking the rule about not wearing a bra, except me. Yeah, no, I think I think that I think that's fair. Also, like standards around that stuff change all the time. I was rewatching Friends, and there is like nipple in every single Friends episode. <laughs> like that was just like that part of the like late nineties, early two thousands. Like, it's like the- it's actually like shocking because I watch it and I'm like, whoa, I'm so aware of it because there's so little nipple on TV now. Is that the era when, like, mannequins all had nipples, too? Yes. <laughs> 90s mannequins. I love a mannequin with a good nipple. It's really weird. And I was like, man, if, you know, the people of the, like, early 2000s didn't have a problem with nipples, I don't understand why it's such a big deal right now. Right. I mean, so is our advice to this free boobin lady just, like, never wear a bra when you don't want to wear one? Yeah, my advice is live your life, man. Like, yeah. you know, I like, I start taking my bra off in the elevator, in my apartment like that's how that works <laughs> that's out one sleeve out the other yeah no sometimes it's like in the train I already start taking it off and then i get home and it's just like one fell swoop just be comfortable just be yourself if somebody brings it up shame them amazingly and they won't do it again just be happy also thank you for bringing the term free boobin into my life i know Ugh. smart lady You want to read another one? Okay. I'm a writer by trade, and I'm reaching my final year of college very soon. Ah, mazel tov. 
The further into upper division writing classes I get, upper division, a word I have not heard in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. The further into the upper division writing classes I get, the more I realize how many great writers there are around me, and I am beginning to feel discouraged in my validity as a writer. My backup plan is to be a teacher like my mother, but there's that saying, those who can't teach. How do I become more confident in my ability to write? And furthermore, how can I come to terms with the fact that I may not be able to make it as a writer? Woof. First of all, teaching is a great profession, if that's what you want to do. Do you have advice for this lady? I don't know, Anne. You're the writer. What would you do if you were in these upper division classes? <laughs> I don't I don't know if being a writer is necessary to, to answer this question, actually. Well, no, I mean, obviously it's not necessary. I was making a lull. But, you know, I... <laughs> I, I think this question is really interesting because it assumes that that there's a certain number of people for every task and talent and also assumes that you cannot get better and assumes that she's the arbiter of where good writing is. Right. So many things going on Yeah, there. so many assumptions, right? One, this is going to be a little harsh. There's always going to be somebody that is better at you than something. Like, that's just something you're going to have to get used to. There are always going to be better writers, especially. I can't name one thing that I'm the best person at in my life. I, like, can't, and I'm really okay with that. Except maybe watching shitty TV. Even then, I have, like, good rivals. I mean, I can think of lots of things that you're the best at, but, like, that's maybe not the best way to prop up I mean, but, you know, like, not, here. like, job things. <laughs> you know, no, yeah. but I think, I think that that's true. But I think that that's a reality that you have to be okay with. You shouldn't, don't compare yourself to other people because there's not like one standard of comparison. Right. Also, the idea that because other people are great writers, that means you can't produce your best work is crazy. It's not like there is a limited supply of great writing and other people have claimed it. There is an unending amount of really great writing in the world and acknowledging that other people making it doesn't mean you can't, I think is very critical. I'm like, I see where you are coming from. I feel your pain, but also you take responsibility for your own life, as Oprah says. Right. <laughs> and there are many, many, there are great many writers out there. There are, there's a lot of things that you can do. This is, this, re- this is reminding me a lot of the plot of Girls last season, where Hannah goes on to become a teacher. Like, she becomes a substitute teacher. And I'm like, that anxiety is really real, right? And she feels like she failed as a writer, and that's why she's a teacher. And one, I'm like, teaching is a great profession. Right. Uh, Don't knock it. But also, there is a place for you. You just have to work really hard at it, and you have to keep being... Like, you can't be anybody but yourself. And if that's what you want to do, you're going to have to persevere. Right. Also, what does it mean to make it as a writer? I mean, this is something that... I write, I'm technically a writer, but I write lots of things that I'm not proud of and you will never see on my website. Not just because it's like, this isn't my best work, but because I'm like, oh yeah, I said yes to that assignment. I really didn't think was that great because I needed to make rent. I guess there may be a handful of people for whom making it as a writer means you only write exactly the work that you're most proud of and most fulfilled by and nothing else. But like, I have yet to personally know any of those writers. Like most writers I know have full-time jobs doing something else or supplement their writing work with other types of work. Making it is such a, like a, an awful standard to hold yourself to. Oh, also the other thing I was going to say is that being in school is the wrong barometer for everything. You have to step into the actual real world. That ha- you, It's okay to have a lot of anxiety about like other people at school being better than you, but once you step outside of that world, you will see that there are many more options for you. 
And right. there is a place for you somewhere. Right. And also this question, like, how do I become more confident in my ability to write? Something about the way that's phrased says says to me that you're, like, not doing all that much writing. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's phrased not how do I become more confident about the writing, like the things I'm producing every day. It's like yeah. my ability. It almost feels like it's stopping before you start. And it's one of those things where if you can get past the phase where you're like, everything I read seems better than what I'm able to produce, then you can keep doing it for a long time. If, you, if you're, if you like, stopped in your tracks by other people's great writing instead of inspired by it, like, there's no there's no future in that. There's Ira Glass has this thing where he talks about how you have to suck really bad in the beginning and you have to work really hard at something. Like, he talks about his, like, start in radio and how awful he was. Right. And, and I think that he's being... Yeah, and he's, like, being really honest about it. There are a few people who just come out of the gate and just, like, produce amazing work. You don't know that you're good at something or bad at something unless you've been doing it for a long time. There is a lot of, like, grace and forgiveness there. Right. Just doing it as a practice. The notion of you can only produce writing that's great and that's all that counts as writing is also wrong. You know, (laughs) like, you can produce writing all the time. Like, constantly. 10,000 hours, boo-boo. Yeah. For sure. There's something real about that. Ugh. So real. Okay, good luck to this lady. Keep her. Good luck. It's not as glamorous as you think to be a writer. That's it. <laughs> That's like just just here telling you that. <laughs> it's, it's still there's still shit work associated with being a writer. <laughs> Amazing. Oh my god okay tell me this is the best we both like howled at this email thank you to this woman who wrote us can we discuss stanley tucci hallelujah yes we can i saw him on the graham norton show talking about his new cookery book and it strikes me that he is the renaissance man's new renaissance man is he the perfect dinner party host i am drawn to him i mean if by drawn to him you mean stanley tucci can get it like yes I've been stanley a mem- tucci can get it <laughs> i've been a member of that like stanley tucci has been high in the spank bank for like years Ugh. i mean i don't even know what to say to this like yes we can discuss stanley tucci but in a way we don't really have that much to say because it's just fanning ourselves yeah i know the tucci so i have to look this up because i remember this so well Frank Bruni wrote about him in the Times like a million years ago, and he was wearing the most beautiful apron in the world. (laughs) Like, it is seared in my memory in the paper that day. Hold on, I'm looking it up. Yep, found it. Uh, Hollywood ending with meatballs. And you have to look this up. Look at his polka dot, like, apron. Hang on. He's making Branzino pizza, fettuccine, figs, and prosciutto. Oh, sorry. Oh, my God. Like, seared into my brain. Is that an outdoor, like, stone oven? Yeah. So here's the deal with Stanley Tucci. He's married to Emily Blunt's sister. Emily Blunt that he was in Devil Wears Prada with. Full circle. Because his first wife died of cancer, which was, like, really heartbreaking. And he remarried. And so there was, like, a lot of fanfare around the second wedding. And obviously it's, like, a big Hollywood thing. So he's, like, you know, friends with all of his co-stars. I have read the Tucci cookbook. It's good. It's, like, very good. 
Also, remember when he was Julia Child's husband in the Julie and Julia awful movie? Yes, I do. I mean, the movie that I only watched the Julia parts of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, only watch the Julia parts. Um, He's I, ugh, the, the most amazing man. I also highly recommend this list in the toast by Mallory Ortberg called If Stanley Tucci Were Your Boyfriend. I'm not sure I even want to spoil it. It's It doesn't really fully flesh out my personal Stanley Tucci fantasy, but I think it offers some great suggestions. Oh, man, the Tucci, he's just amazing. If Stanley Tucci were your boyfriend, it would always be the second week of fall. The sun would never <laughs> set before 8 p.m. and you would never sweat again. Just I lo- I love him I love I love him in ever like I've never seen him in a movie and not like love the part that he played. Yeah, anyway. that includes that really shaky Hunger Games. Wow. <laughs> oh, he's amazing in Hunger Games, and yeah, no, we can discuss the Tooch. He is like the best man. Ugh, men we endorse. I know. I'm like sweating now. I'm gonna go through like know, me too. every. I'm gonna go through Google Image like every Stanley Tucci picture. I'm gonna go take a lap. <laughs> I'm gonna rewatch Devil Wears Prada too. We've been make, we've been making like so many Jarlsberg jokes recently. <laughs> I might as well. Please do. I'll show you how to make what I think sure. is uh, a proper martini. The martini has changed over generations and generations. It used to be a lot of vermouth. You were a bartender at one point. I was right? bartender when I was a kid, yeah. As a kid? Yeah. Well, years ago, you could you could be a bartender when you were 18 years old. Can't do that anymore. It was a great experience. Okay, so to do this, yeah. I'll just show you. We're just going to put a drop a of drop. vermouth. That's it? Okay, that's it. All right, and now I'm going to make two two different kinds of martinis. One is with vermouth and the other is with scotch. During World War II in London, uh, vermouth was not available. They substituted scotch. I happen to like it with scotch. Okay, so we're going to do that. And then we're just going to stir stir it up. You never shake it. The purists don't shake. Okay. James Bond shook, though, didn't he? Was he a purist? Depends oh. on which Bond it was, I guess. So you add a little bit of Noyiprat in this one, uh-huh. and the other one will have a little bit of scotch. It's basically pure vodka. That's a martini. You want to put a little bit of this in. Are you using olive or, or a twist? I actually prefer a twist, because I think it's a cleaner taste. Now, taste that. That's with the scotch. I like with the scotch. Yeah, it's warmer. It has more depth to it. I like a, a little bit of the smokiness of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, me oh. too. This is really good, but it's strong. It's strong? Yeah. It should be. Cheers. Well, cheers. Okay, this next question, it's kind of long. I don't even know if it's a question again. Um, I am a huge fan of the podcast, and I love listening. I'm also all about the period talk, because I relate so much, and I'm glad that you're not afraid to talk about something that happens to loads of people, but is considered really taboo. Yeah, this is the podcast for you. (laughs) (laughs) However, I'm writing to ask if it's possible for you to use more inclusive language when talking about period. I'm cis, parentheses, I identify as the gender I was assigned at birth, but I know lots of trans and non-binary people with menstrual cycles too. Not all people who identify as women get periods, and not all people who get periods are women. So I guess what I'm asking is that when period talk happens, that it's acknowledged in some way that it's not just some women who get periods are involved in this conversation. I usually just use the term people with periods slash menstrual cycles, and though not creative or romantic, it doesn't leave people out. I think intersectionality is always important in feminism, and in this situation, I think it's important to look at the intersection of feminism with queer identities. 
You both seem like really cool people, so I hope that this message doesn't come off as accusatory or argumentative. I truly love the show and wanted to bring up this thing that is sometimes left out of the conversation surrounding feminism. Thanks for reading. This listener is 16, so I feel very, I feel very tender about it. Wow. Advanced. Very advanced. Oh, and then she sent, P.S. I found this great article on everyday feminism written by a trans guy about his period and thought it might be relevant. We're going to link to that. Yeah. I mean, my first thought is valid. Very valid. What's your second thought? My second thought is that I think most of the time when we talk about periods, I could be wrong. My feeling is a lot of the time when we talk about periods, we talk about our periods and we both happen to identify as people who get periods who are women. That explains, though perhaps does not excuse, our bias in that direction. Yeah, those are my, those are my main thoughts. I concur with those thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm refilling my wine and trying not to pour this bottle all over my computer. I agree with you. I think that that's, that's really real. I want to say also that of all of this kind of email that I've gotten, this was the nicest, least argumentative, least accusatory ever. And I really want to commend that. Maybe I'm like poking at a hornet's nest now. <laughs> I agree a lot about the um, intersectionality. What is kind of lost on me, though, is this mandate to be inclusive all of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is a real struggle thinking about language is sort of saying, okay, what, at what point does sort of mindfulness about very valid questions that she raises, at what point does that mindfulness work against the natural or like what feels like the quickest and easiest way to talk about something? If I really sat down with a transcript of our podcast and was like, okay, here are all the things I said that were not as inclusive as my beliefs really are, where I like failed to live up to my beliefs about wanting this podcast to feel inclusive, I would be red pen circling a ton of things that we say, I'm sure. And I think that in some ways, the best thing is to sort of be reminded and gently, gently reminded in this wonderful, nice way by our 16-year-old listener that even just occasionally recognizing not all people who get periods identify as women, not all women get periods <laughs> is a good thing to sort of like pepper in there. But I have questions also about just the like the like language implications of trying to not be exclusive with every turn of phrase, if that makes sense. I feel like that was very convoluted. No, it, make, it makes sense to me. <laughs> I get you. <laughs> I don't know. There's like a lot of people I want to send this email to as the, here's a good template for like talking to somebody about something that, you know, like is a touchy subject. I once received an email from... I would say not a friend, but like kind of a, like a good internet acquaintance, someone I have lots of friends in common with about an article that I wrote where I had talked about, I think it was something that had to do with workplace experiences and what presenting like a woman meant in the workplace. And she, very much in the style of this email, was like, hey, you know, you, you sort of mentioned that this is tough for people who are non-gender conforming in lots of ways not just women. You mentioned that in the article once, but like I really felt like you didn't draw out this other very real issue in your column. And it was the same thing. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, Thank you for pointing this out in a very real way. I don't get a pass just because I listed, you know, in the beginning of the article, this is tough for other, for people who, 
you know, are gender nonconforming and for women and for people of color. That's sort of like non-straight cis white dude laundry list of identities that can apply to a lot of social problems or that, that who experience problems a little differently, maybe. And we had a great exchange about it. I don't know. It's like constant, constant vigilance. I feel like it made me think about that in the next few weeks. And then, you know, you have to sometimes it's your own reminder to yourself. And sometimes it's like someone else nudging you. Um, and sometimes sometimes it's something you read where you're like, oh, yeah, just being a little mindful of like who is also listening and receiving this. It's not everyone is exactly constant like me. Constant vigilance. Constant vigilance. I like, that. I like that. Yeah. All that is to say that this is appreciated. And also the fact that she recognizes that this is something we would care about. So often like notes like this are sort of like, why don't you care about people who aren't cisgender, which is Obviously, we both care about that. And so she kind of has the assumption that, like, these are issues we care about. Why don't you talk yeah. about them like you care about? Which I appreciate. I really appreciate. I'm telling you a really good template. Like, good confrontation. So small C template. Right. And we will link to this article about the trans guy about his period. I'm looking it up right now. And this is also hardcore. Man. Awesome. What else? What else? Well, speaking of gentle calling out, I have a brief update in which I talk to other white people about their use of emoji. <laughs> um, and it reminded me. The, your use of the phrase, co- phrase constant vigilance reminded me because I was texting with our friend Beth Pickens about this and we were just like whiteness, constant vigilance. <laughs> um, but uh, many people replied in the style of this one um, this one email that we got. Uh, in which which a listener says, I was really glad to hear you talking about the new emoji options and to learn that I'm not the only one who has weird feelings about which emoji complexion to use. Like Anne, I'm also thrilled with this update, but unsure how to apply it in my own use as a white person. I know you will roll your eyes at this, but I often end up defaulting to the yellow to avoid having to choose. Um, I know this is stupid and also an aspect of white guilt and shame and whatever. <laughs> sort of like that 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 was a nice summary of of a few of the conversations I had where people were like, um, yeah, it seems complicated. I just defaulted to yellow, which is interesting because since we talked about it, I I have just defaulted to like many different things. Like I've sort of I've gotten more confident about using the whole spectrum as opposed to feeling like I have feeling weird about using like deliberately using a color like that was not white with a white friend um I am rolling my eyes but it's with love I mean you know so much of this episode I feel is eye rolling with love (laughs) (laughs) I think that's our entire lives anyway um, I'm just yeah no this is really fascinating to me I don't know man also um a friend of ours did send us a screenshot of his emoji usage and he he's taking a full spectrum approach as well I appreciated that disclosure I know but I I will say that like you know his friendship circle also spans full spectrum approach so I did not expect less from him there is a spectrum issue in terms of like who are you texting with but I feel like the core question I have the same question I don't know. I guess I have more of a question when I text other white people, but I still have the same question if I'm texting someone who is not white, which is, yeah. That's fair. I want the NSA to just leak all white people emojis to me, like text exchanges. I'm like, I want to know what's really going on here. So much default yellow and probably, (laughs) probably lots of things that, I don't know. Anyway, again, whiteness, constant vigilance. That's all we need to 
constant vigilance. I like it. It's a good, good MO. Yep. All right. Okay. We have one more question. And man. Okay. So doozy. I have this. I can't believe I just said doozy. <laughs> I have this coworker who really seems to dislike me. The harder I try to engage with her, the worse it gets. I know that sometimes people just don't get along, but it's a small team and we rely on each other to get our work done. I have tried to talk to her about it to see if I had done something to offend her or hurt her, but she refused to acknowledge anything was wrong. Her comments are borderline disrespectful, but so subtle and so passive-aggressive that when I try to resolve the tension and move forward, it was easy to make it seem like I was creating drama. Ugh, I hate that. (laughs) I also ramble a lot in these situations and apologize when it's not my fault, so I'm sure that doesn't help. Nope. She's great, at her, she's great at her job and is diligent and talented, but I find our collaborations very difficult because she doesn't seem to want to engage with me. Um, in short, I would like to know if either of you have ever had a coworker who you rubbed the wrong way and and how you dealt with it. Did you just rub your microphone? It's- <laughs> I, I think so. Oof. It's so hard to know what's like what's really going on here. I feel like I want like an office cam view of these things. There, there seems to be a little bit of, I don't know what I've done. She won't engage with me. Like, it seems, obviously we're hearing this, like, one-sided from someone, but it also seems like there has to be another part to this story, is all I'm saying. Gotta, gotta hear both sides. <laughs> well, I think the way that a lot of this is phrased is really interesting, right? I think that if, to the best of your knowledge, you have not done anything, and the person is not telling you what you have done, you're right. Over-apologizing is not helping. Because you're shouldering blame <laughs> that uh, for something that you didn't do, but also it comes across as disingenuous and like makes you seem spineless. The other part of this with the coworker is that she might not like you, but you don't have to like people to work with them. You know? Yeah, and um, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that there's this when she talks about what the coworker has actually done, she says her comments are borderline disrespectful, but so subtle and so passive aggressive. And there's something about that too that says to me, I don't I'm not at all saying it's all in your head, but I do think that there the, the a- attempts to communicate are like so often <laughs> mis uh, you know, received poorly or like maybe she is just a super straightforward person who has who doesn't see this as disrespect or maybe there isn't actually attention and she's being totally honest with you when she says I don't know what you're talking about but 100% Amina I agree with you that if she's not acknowledging that anything's going on and there's not a problem with the work it seems to be the sort of thing where you just have to like deal <laughs> And here's the other thing, too, right? There will always be people that don't like you. I don't know. Like, some people are beloved. God bless them. <laughs> um, Everybody has people who dislike them. Yeah. I, I'm sure... <laughs> I love how I'm like, I'm sure I rub people the wrong way. I can see all of them, like, just flashing before my eyes right now. Like, there are a lot of people that I rub the wrong way. But here's the deal. You're at work to do work. As long as both of your work doesn't suffer and this person is not sabotaging you or throwing you under the bus... It's something that you can live with. But I also understand, you know, like, and like some people are real assholes. Oh, like for sure. I, my first job out of college when I worked in <laughs> DC, 
I have these kids who were just mean to me and all like ganged up on me. And I love it now because I see them all and I'm like, hmm, look at how far we've all come. Like, fuck some of you. Yeah, some of us further <laughs> than others. Yeah, you know, like, now they're always, like, writing me for recommendation letters. And I'm just like, please, I remember all of this shit. But life is long. We're all playing a long game. Mm-hmm. This person could be a huge asshole. And it makes your life at work really unpleasant. And there are a couple of ways that you can cope with it, right? As long as your work is not suffering, you're getting it done all you're having is crazy, like, annoying interactions with this person, make sure to keep as much of them to email as possible and document everything. You know, like, never walk away from a work conversation with this person and not follow up on email or whatever so that they're not trying to throw you under the bus. Right, it's notoriously hard to hear tone in email, which is maybe a blessing in this case. No, totally. And just choose to suck it up. Whatever. Also, she's not saying, like, If this person is on her level, above her, or whatever at work, I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that they're kind of on the same level in the food chain and just have to interact with each other. The other thing that you can do is just make like a big, bold move and either take this person out to lunch or to drinks and tell them like, hey, I'm sensing a lot of tension with us. We don't have to like each other. I just want to get our work done. Keep it to the work. Be a little aggressive, show that you have a spine, be prepared to bite back. And yeah, and be able to articulate when you say, I find our collaborations difficult, or like, she doesn't seem to want to engage. What does that practically mean? Like, she doesn't answer your emails? Or like, you ask questions in meetings and she rolls her eyes? Like, what is the action that is associated with your feelings about it? Exactly. If she just doesn't like you and you can't deal, you're gonna have to get over that. But if it's really affecting your work product and your work quality and your work collaboration, then be ready to articulate that very specifically. And also show that you can stand up for yourself. Sometimes, like, that's kind of what it takes. Like, some people love to bully people, and you just have to, like, show that you're not going to take it. Yeah. I mean, bullies who feel insecure about themselves at work are like, oh, the way I feel competent is to make someone else in this office feel less competent. Listen, the best shade is living well. So you just... Work well, get ahead, get all your shit together, don't let this person, like, incite anybody else on you. And here the truth is that you will always be held accountable by your work product. So make sure that that doesn't suffer above all else. Yeah. Um... Ugh, I hate work bullies. You know, when I worked in D.C., I had the best coworker, Cecile, who rescued me from the annoying people. And she would always say, whenever I got into an altercation with, like, these people that I hated, she would always say, just throw them a bone. And that meant, like, doing something nice for them or, you know, like, doing a task that nobody wanted to do. But really, it was very calculating. Mm -hmm. And you need to figure out at your work, like, what that is. What is is the bone? (laughs) What is the bone? And every once in a while, you got to throw them a bone. (laughs) I love that. people are the worst people can i mean yes i feel like that is the unfortunate theme here is that people are the worst people are the worst stand up for yourself and like no yeah good luck okay good luck (laughs) or get a new job we're on your team either way (laughs) i know good luck okay i think that's it man yeah that sounds good thanks for listening you can find us so many places online at callyourgirlfriend.com on iTunes, where if you love us, you can leave us a nice review um, and subscribe so you can get notified when there are new episodes. On Twitter, at callyrgf, 
And uh, you can also email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer and podcast witch, Gina Delvac. <laughs> See you on the internet. See you on the internet. <laughs>